You may be facing a difficult situation in your life. There's an anxiety-producing event looming on the horizon, or you're facing a threat head-on. How do you cope? How can trust in God and acknowledging our fears help us in the midst of emotional turmoil? And can it be that this very state is somehow part of our spiritual awakening? Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, where we discuss the unexpected boons of adversity. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, digs further into mysteries surrounding Swedenborg's opuscula, which is not a medical condition, and I learn a new name for God. And as an extra treat, we attend a royal dinner in 1764 to learn where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history. Hey, Curtis, welcome. Hey, Chelsea, how's it going? It is going well, and yes. I'm happy to be back. Uh, we had, you know, a break week a couple of weeks ago, and now we've had another great week of content. And this past week, we've been exploring spiritual awakenings. And we had our show on Monday was a guide to spiritual awakening that people can find on the YouTube channel. Or if they like audio podcasts, you can. we have a Swedenborg and Life podcast channel where we put all of our, the audio from our videos up there. Um, Leave and, a rating. Rate this show yes, as well. Rate us. Yeah. Spiritual awakenings are cool. And we, <laughs> as part of our weekly lineup of, of shows, we, uh, on Thursdays. Cool, by the way. I, I would agree. Not that I've had them, but just everything that I read about them, it just seems like they're happening. And well, maybe you have, because like, that's what we explore what? in the show is what is the spiritual awakening phenomenon and how does it fit within this, you know, larger spiritual framework that Swedenborg learned about in the spiritual world. Okay. And so it's very, very interesting stuff. Good. Well, I, and, I can self-diagnose as we talk. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. See, see where you are. Um, we, uh, on Thursday offered our weekly reflection question, which you can, if you follow us on social media, you'll find it there. And we love to hear from everybody because that's, you know, our, our flagship show is Swedenborg and life. So we love to hear how do these ideas land with people? And is there any, you know, um, evidence that people have in their own lives or experience that they can share? If you're not, if you're not able to take the concepts that we get in Swedenborg, even if they feel good, if they're not able to show up and apply to what's going on for you day to day and have some kind of impact, then it's nothing. It's just entertainment. So this is the, the life is crucial. And the life is why, by the way, you have people like Chelsea and me obsessed with Swedenborg material. <laughs> yes, it's not exactly. because we have some great affinity for Swedenborg, the person or religious history. This is because this stuff shows up and works and does work in life. Yeah. I mean, it's the same way you can enjoy like a good piece of music is like, there's just something that sounds really good about it. And when I explore Swedenborg, it's like, wow, this kind of makes sense of my life in this whole different way. You know, that's never been so satisfying or so rich and everything. So it's just, it's very, like you say, it, it bears out in, in my lived experience. And so our reflection question for this week is, Curtis, I'm going to pose it to you. Sure. Be ready. Um, what is a spiritual insight you learned from going through a difficult phase? Great. So that's sort of, yeah, no, like that's I'm, like the, I'm, yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, I just, I'm like interrupting you because I'm chomping it. at the bit because all right, all right. I'm going through a Take difficult phase right now. 
Okay. And oh, man. Uh, the insight is that you got to w- trusting, going after trusting the Lord always makes things better. So I was recently mm. having. You can hear this idea, trust the Lord, there's divine providence, but it's very difficult when there are seemingly um, difficult or frightening things that that are very tangible and anyone would argue are real, you know? Yes. So Threatening. So it can be like in your mind, you're like, okay, well, I'm in this situation and I've got to try to lean on my spiritual support. I've got to try to trust that there really is a, a conscious super loving powerful god who's taking care of me that this is my like my parent you know like i'm a child of this god and your mind will helpfully you know with with the help of hell say to you well that's not real i mean you don't need to go and this is not gonna but something that i had this um an insight given to me i feel like which is that Mm -hmm. going even if you get mixed results trying to go into that place of Mm -hmm. i'm going to try to trust god is always beneficial even if you in that moment it feels like they're saying well how could god be a- existing when it's it's not god is not showing up vividly here compared to the other stuff that is but if i just remember the track record going in that direction is always does something good and that in itself is this evidence of of the existence of god yes oh that's great and i uh, to sort of piggyback on that, I feel like that's something, a spiritual insight that I've learned through going through multiple difficult phases, you know, and it kind of like the insight turns into a practice itself. Uh, you know, the one one way that I've heard it phrased is like if you practice when you're in a really difficult state to think about the times when things worked out okay in the past, you know, or like to really remember the times when when your trust, you know, in the Lord bore out and you were, you did make it through a difficult phase or something. And, um, and I feel like that's, that's been an insight that has helped me recently in difficult phases. It's like, this is really hard right now. And I can, um, I'm going to, I'm going to pay attention right now to what I'm predicting is going to happen in this moment. You know, when I'm on this side of whatever this, or in the thick of the difficult you know, like even just acknowledge, okay, I'm predicting that, you know, think life is just going to go downhill. Ne- things are never going to be good again. You know, my life is going to be ruined, all of this yep. stuff. Um, and just say, okay, that's what I'm predicting right now. And I'm going to check in again tomorrow and see, or, you know, like when the difficult thing has passed and then see how, compare how it really went to what I was thinking it would be. And when I do that, uh, and I had the opportunity to do that this week <laughs> was, like, uh, oh, the thing, none of my fears, you know, came true. And this difficult thing, it was hard. It had difficult emotions involved in it, but it's over now. You know, like it's past and I'm still here. My life isn't ruined. You know, all of, you know the yeah. reality, uh, the reality worked out better than my most fearful fantasies, you know. And so that's, um, that just helps affirm this like growing spiritual insight of, things uh, one short way i say it that's a little bit you know cheeky is just like reality is always better you you know reality is better than what i'm thinking reality is and that it's usually my you know um thoughts about why it's not okay that things are happening the way that they're happening (laughs) that that makes it all the more worse (laughs) so yeah that's such a good point I, i had a moment recently where i was really looking back 
and asserting to myself that my fears never play out. I was worried about something, which I don't even remember what it was now, something stupid. And looking back at my entire life, I was just saying to my my little (laughs) demons, tell me one time when anything happened. And that it doesn't mean that bad things haven't happened in my life, but I wasn't right. afraid of those things. I wasn't, I never ru- ruminated on those things and I never was presented with, oh, this might happen if the bad things that happened happened, but they weren't the bad things that my mind was trying to say. I just, for the amount yes. of time I've felt in stress about, I need to get this thing done. I need to get that thing done. What if this happens? I need to go over here and do that. Nothing has ever happened that was related to that it's like a zero batting average why am i trusting it now so exactly reality is always better that's what it is yeah so yeah well great so uh for those of you listening we'd love to hear your responses to this question so even if you're listening now you can go find the posts on social media on at off the left eye uh or on our community tab on our on the youtube channel We'd love to hear your responses there. And then we'll be posting a new reflection question every week on Thursdays connected with the topic of that week's show. And looking forward now, um, this coming week, starting tomorrow, we are unveiling a brand new Swedenborgian Life show. And we're continuing with the spiritual awakening theme. And the subject is the signs of a spiritual awakening explained. Thanks so much for chatting, Curtis. It's always fun to explore these subjects with you. And now will you stick around at the end of the show for talking about where was Swedenborg and what he was up to this week in history? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm honored. All right. Great. See you then. Hey, welcome, Jonathan. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah. And so... We were we we broke ground on a new topic last time, um, talking about uh, just so interesting these uh, Swedenborg publishing in 1763 almost like two different kinds of works. Yeah, it was so interesting to to think that Swedenborg was publishing two different kinds of works. I mean, I grew up with with Swedenborg, but the impression that I had of these works was that they were just all the same flavor. It was all it was all vanilla. Yep. And uh, so this idea was quite shocking to me that there were different types, or even that Swedenborg was aiming at different audiences. Now he never expressly says it, but uh, if I may, I'd like to present some of the evidence, and I get into this a little more in the uh, introduction to the shorter works of 1763 that's now in print and making its way out into the world. I invite you to deliver this evidence. (laughs) Thank you. One, it's a small piece of evidence by itself, but in that list that I mentioned last time of nine works that Swedenborg was anticipating, it's interesting that four of them were called the teachings on this and that, doctrinae, the doctrines, Hmm. But four of them were called angelic wisdom concerning this and that. Interesting. And I got into last time that just that why were there two works on life, you know, coming out in the same year and and all that. Yeah. Uh, So that's not overwhelming by itself. But it's also another interesting little tidbit that when Swedenborg refers to these works with the title angelic wisdom, 
he uses a different label. And when I once I got into this, I, I went crazy. I was looking all up and down Swedenborg's Latin, everything he ever wrote about what did he call his works. Oh, that's so interesting. Like, how did he refer to them? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I wanted to know. I suddenly like, wait a minute. I want to know. And he usually uses the term opus for a larger work, right. meaning a work, or opusculum, which means a small work, and he uses that term in somewhat different ways depending on, you know, sometimes heaven and hell is a whole opus and sometimes it's just an opusculum, you know, in different passages. Relative to secrets of heaven, it is. <laughs> it, it is definitely an opusculum, that's right. And then for the angelic wisdom works, he uses a new term that he's never used for his works before, at least in the in the theological works which is a, a tractatus or a, a treatise. Oh. Uh, you know, a, again, not huge, but it's interesting that he seems to go out of his way. In fact, there's even one passage that I quote in the introduction in which he refers to three different works, and he says, the treatise on divine love and wisdom, the treatise on divine providence, and the work on heaven and hell, or something oh, like that. Like yes. he just... He's being pretty specific about using... They're different in his mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're kind of a different animal. Uh, but two other pieces of evidence that are very strong, one of which I mentioned last time, is the amount of Scripture quoting. And it really is yeah. pretty astonishing that if you take as a baseline the works, let's say, of 1758 that he did, Heaven and Hell and the other works, in the angelic wisdom books that we have, Divine Love and Wisdom right. and Divine Providence. The ones he actually wrote, yeah. That's right, because some of them he, he didn't. He, he anticipated that he would do it, and he didn't. So we only have this slender amount to go by. But in those works, uh, particularly in Divine Love and Wisdom, he actually cuts in half, by one measure, the amount of Scripture quoting that he's done since uh, the 1758s, hmm. you know, he turns it down. He turns the volume down. And that's shocking to me. I, I, I didn't realize that before. But he is talking much less about the Bible. Yeah. And meanwhile, in the doctrinae, the doctrines, the, the teachings, it's turned way up, as I may have mentioned last time, hmm. over 12 times as much as in the 1758s. So by another measure, I know the math doesn't perfectly work out, but Divine <laughs> Wisdom quotes Scripture 45 times as much as, um, I mean, 45 times less yes. than uh, the, the work on the Lord, doctrine of the Lord. And, um, and another thing is a vocabulary. Because all of those things by themselves, you might say, well, I don't know. But he actually uses different vocabulary. So even though the the work on the Lord and divine love and wisdom are both about God, um, yes, the which the, is okay. So to the, to make it clear, so you've got divine love and wisdom. It's about God, and that's one of these angelic wisdom books. And then the book of the Lord is one of the teachings, the doctrine teachings. of works. And so, but they're both about God. Okay. That's correct. And they're both published in the same year, 1763. Right. Wasn't good enough. We're not going to have one book on God. Two different books what's in them. Yeah. That's right. And the work on the the teachings on the Lord, which are also heavily biblical, talk in terms of what might be familiar Christian terminology, mm -hmm. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, Jesus, 
Christ. And, and that sort of language, mm-hmm. very biblical, very traditionally Christian language, in Divine Love and Wisdom, he doesn't, he hardly talks at all in those terms. I think I found two passages hmm. where he briefly mentions the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or something, but it's just not a thing. So interesting. And instead, in Divine Love and Wisdom, he uses this particular Latin term. Now, we're getting even farther into geek land That's here what we're or here for. But, That's what we're here but, for. <laughs> but there's a Latin, you're so gracious. Uh, there's a Latin term, Deus Homo. It's just two nouns slapped together, God, human being. Mm-hmm. And he uses this term for God in Divine Love and Wisdom uh, pretty much exclusively. And wow. he never uses that. He doesn't use it once in any of those shorter works of 1763. He doesn't use it in the, the uh, works of 1758. Hmm. Not as a name, you know, not as like those two words are the name of God. So it really seems like he's getting away from this whole Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think he's talking to a different audience. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And as I mentioned last time, it seems uh, not like rocket science to say that a work that is full of biblical quotes and talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit (laughs) is probably aimed at a clergy or a very Christian-oriented audience. Right. And the divine love wisdom seems more, it's more philosophical, the, what it's talking about, the way it talks about it, the issues of creation and, and the whole way that it talks yeah. uh, just seems like it's more aimed at people who might even, which was already happening at that time, uh, some prominent thinkers were getting very allergic to the Bible. They, they did not want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. And so it seems like he has accommodated Mm. to those folks, and that he's actually launched something brand new, which is amazing. After, you know, over 10 years into this project, he's doing something new, launching Mm. two different publishing lines at the same time with different audiences in mind. Now, we don't have a letter from him saying, look, this is what I'm doing. Right. But you piece it together from the vocabulary issues and the change in the titles and even referring to them as a different – because treatises were works that were more sort of philosophical or argumentative, you know, kind of making a case. Whereas doctrines is obviously a pretty Christian, biblical kind of word. Uh, So I think he's talking to different audiences and I find that – just fascinating. Yeah, and I'm so glad that he does because I I don't know if I'd be in this game if it weren't for the angelic wisdom books. <laughs> you know, like they're kind of they're a lifesaver to me. And I think they have been for a lot of people when you when you've you know, it's I'm not alone in the experience of, you know, growing up with just like you know, the Christianity turned up to eleven. <laughs> I don't know. Which is fine if you have a good understanding of what that is, but it can be it it's done a lot of harm in the world, unfortunately. And the books on angelic wisdom are just like this breath of fresh air. And what you're saying is like, um, you know, it's sort of hidden in plain sight because I can open the book of Divine Love and Wisdom or Divine Providence, and it's just a completely different experience than than opening the book of the Lord and you're just going blind with, with scripture references, like you say. <laughs> and, yeah. And there's it, a different it, use for each of them. Like they're 
they're both useful and I've found spiritual nutrition in each of them. But like, man, am I grateful for those angelic wisdom books. <laughs> yeah, for for me, the, the, the Lord and those works were a little bit more of an acquired taste. Uh-huh. Uh, but once I got into the Bible and uh, doing my Bible study right. and other things like that, Oh, now I see what he's doing in there. It's awesome. You know, oh. it's beautiful. Uh, it's really incredible what's going on in there. But uh, it, it took a little bit of like background uh, to get me up, up to speed with what was going on in there yeah. and the power of it. And uh, Divine Love and Wisdom has been an entryway for a lot of people, I think. It's so cool. It, it makes me think of the... Um, uh, t- 12 gates, as I may have mentioned last yes. time, just just different points of entry. Like, this is not a, hey, everybody, you got to line up here. <laughs> this is the only door in. Yep. Uh, there are different ways to get into this. And, and uh, I find that very beautiful. That is so cool. And it really, it just seems like it's practicing what he preaches in a way, because it's like, I'm more familiar with what he's written than him himself. You know, we only have the historical record. But the books themselves just share such a message of, uh, you know, so much respect for the different ways people understand God and what works for them in their life. And like that, that has just meant so much to me in my life. And, and so it's cool to see how his own publishing kind of reflects the ideas that he's writing about. It's just awesome. I see that divine love and that desire to engage. Yep. You know, nobody's the out group. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. This has been a fabulous time talking with you about this. And I look forward to us continuing this uh, train in, in the next in the next episode. I can't wait to hear more about about these two audiences and where it goes from here. Oh, that'll be fun. Hey, so will you stick around now to uh, let's see where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history? Oh, I love these little history bits that we get to do. <laughs> All right, here we go. Okay, so Curtis and Jonathan. Here. Here. <laughs> Ready to learn. <laughs> Thanks. So great to have you guys here. So this week for where Swedenborg was and where he was this week in history, we are going back to the year 1764. And you'll know that if you've been listening to any of these podcasts that for the last number of weeks, we've been talking about these, the shorter works of 1763 And so here we are now, the year after their publication, and I do find it interesting that here we are this week, you know, uh, in August, we are promoting this newest translation of Swedenborg's works of 1763, and this very week in history, he was doing that too. That's (laughs) right. He was promoting the 1763s this week in history. Yeah, Um, wouldn't it be a comfort to him to know that you know, 200 <laughs> plus yes. years later, people were still trying to get anyone to notice these books you put <laughs> <laughs> We are carrying the torch. And something else about him now in 1764, if I have my history right that I've learned from Jonathan so far, is he's out now. You know, he, he was publishing anonymously and he still is not putting his name to his books as far as I know, but he's no longer you know, trying to hide the fact that they're his books. So he's like, he's got them, he's published them, and he's now going out of his way to 
get them on people's desks and in, in front of people's faces. Am I right about that, Jonathan? That's right. In fact, in 1763, in a cool little book that I just received in the mail from, from Sweden by mm. somebody named Alnander, uh, in 1763, Alnander uh, printed Swedenborg's name alongside the titles of his books, and that's the first time in history that his name was associated with these books in print. Wow. And so that was a year before the events that we're talking about. So, yes, it was it was known. So if you have the, the like first edition publications of these books, they don't have Swedenborg's name on them. But no. people knew it so that they even could print about the books and said, yep, it's Swedenborg. You could sell those right. on eBay for a pretty penny. Yes, I think you could. And so now, so this week in 1764, um, well, so actually at the end of July, he was, Swedenborg, Swedenborg was in Amsterdam and we know that he presented the 1763s to none other than the king of Denmark, um, King Frederick V, uh, in Copenhagen. And then he leaves Amsterdam and he heads back to Sweden, to Stockholm. And so then this week in history, he goes to another set of royals and he manages to be able to present the 1763s to the royal majesties of Sweden at the time, King Adolf Frederick and his wife, Queen Louisa Ulrika of Prussia. That's right. And Swedenborg had had interactions with royalty through the course of his life and as a nobleman and a member of the government, but he'd never given his theological works to royalty hmm. before Frederick V of, of Denmark. So this was a, a whole new development. This is a commentary on the nature of providence, or it has to be. And I think we mentioned this mm -hmm. in an earlier show, because what you have here is Swedenborg fully enlightened by this point. The idea of God and life after death and that there's a divine plan taking care of all the miniature details of his life, that was real to him. That was <laughs> tangibly felt. And yet, here, back here on the other side, where he's distributing the books that he feels like are of utmost importance to get that information out, he's having to use strategy. He's saying, I'm going to go talk to these kings and queens because they will probably distribute stuff far and wide if I can get them to love it. So there is this as of self, where even though he knows God is doing everything, he's having to sit there and ponder and try stuff. And that he's resigned to that. He knows that that's just how it works, even though God is going to control the process. So it's just something I think you can take and apply to your own life. And how do you believe in providence? And yet you do seem to need to try to figure things out. Right. That is so true. That's exactly the lesson I get out of it, too. That's so interesting. Well, and this, this particular tack of his was like, um, you know, pretty amazing for him. Like Jonathan was saying, he had connections with, you know, he's a noble at this point. He has connections with the the royalty of Sweden and I guess had enough connections to be able to have that um, visit with the king of Denmark at the time too. But um, he it works out for him because uh, when he gives the books to the king and queen, he gets invited to dinner. It was almost immediate because he arrived back on the 12th of August and then they had dinner on the 19th. Uh, so as soon as he gave them the books, you know, like very quickly thereafter, he must have gotten that invitation. So this week in history, Swedenborg was having dinner with the king and queen of Sweden and getting to tell them about the 1763s. And, you know, it was him there with the king and queen there um, 
their sons. They had three sons. Um, they had a daughter, but she was only 11 at the time. And so I wonder if she wasn't at like the big dinner. Um, and uh, Mom, this is so boring. I know, right? What's this guy talking about angels and spirits or whatever? Because, well, so that's the thing is that, um, well, so these sons, they're, it was Gustav, Charles, and Frederick Adolf, and they were 18, 16, and 14. And from what we know, Swedenborg says that he uh, was talking to them about his spiritual experiences, right? And that he was in the company of angels and could talk with people after they died. Am I right in thinking that, Jonathan? Yes. And um, two of them became kings of Sweden, which is kind of an unusually high ratio right. from a family <laughs> pressure um, on that third one yeah that's right <laughs> Poor guy <laughs> and um uh, i believe the daughter was there also because it says the whole family somewhere there's, there's oh, okay. a source that says the whole family and there were five other of uh, present or former members of what was called the privy council which was uh, kind of an executive committee within the government sort of thing and uh, several of those were people that he had already talked to about his works, Count Tessin, Count Bunda, Count von Höpken. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and yes, all accounts are that they talked about nothing else the whole evening. But Swedenborg's spiritual experiences, like that was the subject, that was the dinner conversation that, with Swedenborg that himself. Was the topic. Yeah, I have a, a letter if you'd like me to read it about that. Sure. Um, Just keep it in your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of he course says, you can Not read now. It. No. <laughs> that our Savior revealed himself before me in a visible way and commanded me to do what I have done and what further is to be done, and that he le- then allowed me to come into conversation with angels and spirits. This I have declared before the whole of Christendom in England, Holland, Germany, Denmark, as also in France and Spain, and likewise on different occasions here in this kingdom, before their royal majesties, and in particular, when I had the grace to eat at their majesty's table, when the whole royal family was present, and also five privy counselors, when nothing else was talked of but this. Now, you might say, well, Swedenborg wrote that letter, and maybe he's exaggerating. I mean, there might be some advantage to exaggerating. But the person that he wrote that letter to was the king he had dinner with. <laughs> so it would be kind of hard to get away with. I don't remember uh, that. Yeah, do you remember that? <laughs> so, I just, and there's an independent attestation also from another source that says that um, a week later says, eight days ago, Assessor Swedenborg was at Drottningholm, which was the queen's palace, mm-hmm. presenting his new books to the king who commanded him to eat at his table, whereupon he captivated the royal family with news from the other world. Wow. I'm sorry. I I don't know so much about the history stuff, so when I have a a point I feel like I can make, I've just got to return to it and return to it. But that, that Swedenborg is saying, look, Jesus Christ told me to go do this. He he appeared to me and commissioned me, and I told this to everyone, but still... Even if God is saying, I want this done, still he's leaving, he's not micromanaging. He's, Swedenborg is then, okay, I've got my directive, but I've got to try to, in what seems to be my own way, figure this out. So it's yeah. just fascinating to think of, what do you look like when you're enlightened? I would consider Swedenborg to be very enlightened. What does your life look like? It looks a lot like the rest of our yeah, lives. He's but the, yeah, he's hustling, you know, he's yeah, really hustling. He's like, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, I'm going everywhere to tell people about this. Um, 
you know, because there's and no later, guarantee. He's like, got to work for it. Yeah, that's right. And later in his life, uh, he was asked to write a little autobiography, just a little account of his life. So he wrote this three-page account. You know, imagine fitting all of his, by that point, you know, 83 years or something in, into, into three pages. Yeah. And yet he devotes a whole paragraph to that evening with the royal family. Uh, yeah. I think it was very important to him. And another little interesting tidbit from this is that just a week and a half after that dinner, uh, the S- Swedish royal librarian came to Swedenborg's house and specifically asked, can I have a copy of your latest books, Ooh. meaning the works of 1763? It probably felt so good. Totally. Because he's been working so hard on this, getting no recognition, and, and sees the importance of this. To have somebody say, I get it, and I care about this, and I love this, yeah. probably meant the world. Like the ba- the, and the, I just, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go mm. ahead. All I know is at some point, I'm going to need to say, well, wait, wait, wait. I was on a podcast with Jonathan and Chelsea. I can't be that bad. <laughs> Do you see why I was trying to let you go? It's, just, it's nothing. It's a joke. Waste of time. Such, so worth it. Um, no, and I don't even know what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, no. I was going to say that in the, uh, you know, here we are in the, like, the balance is tipping somewhat in his favor. He's been doing this for, like, over 15 years now or something and and uh and and he's reached this tipping point that okay people are actually wanting to get a copy of the book and and what we've talked about in this show too in previous episodes is that um you know he was kind of seeding his spiritual experiences out there because he was realizing this is a way to get people interested and you think that that is maybe bearing some fruit in him getting this dinner engagement with the with the king and queen. I think that I have had a miniature version of the feeling that he must have got when the person knocked on his door and said, I want those books with off the left eye. Mm. Because I didn't write those books. I didn't receive a commission from God. I didn't see it all for myself. But I've totally fallen in love with that message. Like what we were talking about earlier in this episode, Chelsea, about hard times. When I'm going through hard times, the message in Swedenborg's writings is my my really my f- only friend. Mm-hmm. You know that is what is getting me through. So I have this love for it, and for uh, you know most of my life, I knew that oh, barely anybody r- really knows about Swedenborg's material or cares. And when we started the project, and uh, just even even back when it was like Heaven and Hell Facebook page and all the precursors, to see people just out in the world who had no prior appetite for Swedenborg find it and say, wait, oh, this is great. This is changing my yes. life. What does Swedenborg say about that? It's an amazing feeling to say, oh, they get it. And to see people in our audience get lit up about it and have it transform them and have them even like love it more than, than we do, <laughs> it's just awesome. They're being helped by it. Yeah. It's so great. That's a great comment. And the his books... Uh, were stored in the Royal Library. They were even, it sounds like, kind of put on display, or at least it was. there was a, a periodical that came out from that Royal Librarian that said, you can see these works at the Royal Library. You know, wow. Uh, and so the difference between that and the anonymity, the total anonymity he'd been in four years earlier, is stunning. You know, to go to, like, you're sitting with the king and queen, 
and leaders of the government, you know, present and former leaders of the government, the royal family who is going to take over in the future. You yes. Know. Um, and there's some ev- evidence that I've uh, that I've heard. Um, I don't know what it is myself, but there was a Swedish scholar, Ulla Jern, who said that he believes that King Gustav the Third, in other words, that Gustav who was at that dinner, yeah. that that had a huge impact on him. He was very interested, supportive, mm-hmm. you know, like he, he was really kind of, to some extent, in in Swedenborg's camp, or or at least open to that message from there on. Wow, I just want to say, like, way to go, Swedenborg. You know, because people, it's always that feeling of like. You've got this thing that you want to share with the world or something. And there's I feel like there's always that point where it's like, are you wanting to stay under the radar, you know, or or take the risk of actually being out there and everything that comes along with that, you know? And oh. and so this feels a little bit like that turning point for Swedenborg where like, all right, he had his little cushy 10 years or whatever to be writing Secrets of Heaven, getting this whole framework set up in his mind and, and the, these experiences under his belt and stuff. And and now it's kind of like, all right, you've been prepared. Here we go. <laughs> you know, you are Here you're we going go. out there, <laughs> and that's just amazing. That's to right. To get a glimpse of that. So cool. Thank you so much, Curtis and Jonathan. It is really, as always, a pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks for having us. Likewise, it, it is so fun to talk about these things. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. You can subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye wherever you listen to podcasts. And if audio is your thing, subscribe to the Swedenborg and Life podcast to hear our entire weekly lineup of video programs in their audio-only form. If you prefer video, subscribe to the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel. And you can explore all our content and resources at our website, offtheleftye.com. And to become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, go to otle.cosvox.com to support our work with a donation. And now's a great time to give, because from now until the end of September, all donations will go twice as far thanks to a generous $10,000 matching gift we've received. But there are other ways to give, too. It's like showering us in gold and diamonds to rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. And having you there listening is a real form of support in itself, so I mean it when I say thank you for listening. I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next week inside Off the Left Eye.